Lord, I pray that you would speak to us today through your word, that you would feed us, Lord, nourish our hearts and our minds, that we might be transformed into Christ's likeness. Father, I pray that we would be encouraged today. I pray, Lord, that our eye, we would leave here today with our eyes set firmly on the things that are unseen, and our eyes set firmly on our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die. You probably are familiar with that. It's an old song. Um, It's been redone several times. I think there's some truth in that. This week, uh, Friday, well, earlier in the week, Keith who was out here two weeks ago, my brother-in-law, called me to say that one of the founding elders of Reformation Bible Church, his name is Mike LaDuc, his wife Kathy had died suddenly. I've known Kathy since I was little. Uh, Mike and my dad were, along with a couple other guys, were founding members that planted the church there in the late 2000s. They had gone through... Um, some, uh, uh, well, frankly, some church battles together and uh, had left and had wound up planting a church together and along with a few other guys and Kathy was right there with them. And Mike's still in the hospital. He's in ICU there in New Hampshire. He's been there for nine days. Um, he's in his early 60s. Kathy was 61. Last weekend, Chris and I drove to, uh, we celebrate our 25th anniversary this year, and so we went to um, uh, Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia, which I think is the place you're supposed to go at 25 years, right? Um, And my mom, who had uh, kind of arranged the trip for us and made the reservations and whatnot, was texting us and uh, just with some of the details, and she said that her younger sister, my Aunt Judy, um, just kind of casually mentioned, pray for Judy. She's at Mass General in Boston, Massachusetts General Hospital. Um, she's had a stroke. Uh, Judy's had uh, some health problems for several years. She had a brain tumor in the early 90s and has sort of been dealing with the effects of that for 20, almost 30 years now, I guess, or maybe, maybe 30 years. Um, and so on Friday, she called, and, and uh, she had been at a um, meeting with the doctors. She and, and Henry, my uncle, Judy's husband, they'd gone down and met with the doctors, and, and essentially, without saying this, they, they had to come up with an end-of-life plan. Judy's had several strokes, and so it was sort of like one of those when she said to pray for her, yeah, yeah, we'll pray for her, she'll be home soon, it'll be okay. Um, and she's lost all uh, movement of the left-hand side of her body, and um, it's not going to come back. And so, Henry, my uncle, is going to have to care for her for the rest of her life, physically and literally. And then, of course, we know and we've been praying for the Wolf family. Steve's mom passed suddenly on Friday morning as well. Those are just a couple of examples. Um, Some of us have tasted death recently. 
Some of us have received difficult diagnoses. Some of us in this room have received some difficult diagnoses not that long ago. Some in this room have had to make some difficult career decisions. We've been sick. We've been tired. We've been discouraged and we have felt defeated. I, I pray that that's not all of us, by the way. I don't think it is. Some of you have had some pretty good weeks, but some of us have not. And so we weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. But I would dare say that probably almost everyone in here is sick and tired of politics, earthly politics. We're sick and tired of COVID and all of that. We're sick and tired of inflation. Where did that come from? We're sick and tired of gender fluidity. What in the world? And all of those discussions around that. It's been a difficult week for some of us. And so this morning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to depart from our regular study. Uh, we've been working through 1 Corinthians chapter, well, we would be in chapter 5 this week. If you know anything about 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it is a chapter where there is... Um, immorality in the church that needs to be dealt with. We will deal with that chapter, but not this week. Being that it is today, as, as Craig said, this is Reformation Day, um, I was planning to look at Romans chapter 12 this morning as sort of a Reformation checkup. But I came home on Friday evening after a couple of pastoral visits along with a bunch of texts and calls with people. And late Friday evening, Chris asked me what my sermon was on this week. The sermon was done, by the way. I try to have it done by the end of the day on Friday. I'm not a Saturday night preparer, generally. Um, and so I told her Romans chapter 12, and she said, we, we need some hope. People need some hope. I hope there's hope in that sermon. And I gulped and said, I, I hope so too. <laughs> And so we watched TV for a little while and just did, you know, the normal Friday evening, whatever people do when your kids have moved out of the house and you sit there and watch TV and pet the cat or whatever, drink tea. We got up to go to bed and I, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go up to my study for a little while. And so I sat down on Friday night uh, and, and I guess you could say Saturday morning and I started looking at this passage that we're going to look at today, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, just those last couple of verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And so we're jumping ahead, we're going to 2 Corinthians. Um, we're going to do so without a, without a deep dive into it, without a, a, a going into the background or the context of the, of the passage. We will get into it a little bit, I'm not going to pull it out of context. But I want to encourage you this morning and keep looking ahead to keep your eyes set firmly on Christ, to look forward with hope. To look forward with hope. So let me read this, and this is going to be a little more, um, I hope it doesn't come across as too unprepared. I, I think you understand. Cut me a little bit of slack this week. Not every week, but this week I would appreciate it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses, just the last paragraph, verses 16, 17, and 18 says this. So we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. These... um, These three verses, these words that the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, I think are some of the most comforting and and calming words ever written. Maybe you can think of one possible exception to that. I, I can think of one possible exception, and it's this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Those are probably the most comforting words ever spoken, of course, by our Savior Jesus. But these three verses here by the Apostle Paul, also the Word of God, are incredibly comforting. And again, my goal for us today here in this church is that we would truly understand rest in Christ. And so he begins by by just stating a fact. It's not a command, it's just a fact. So we do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. Look again at verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This opening phrase, so we do not lose heart. It's the the driving point of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his second letter here. Now, we've been studying 1 Corinthians, and and especially beginning in chapter 5, but we've seen this in the first four chapters, as the Apostle Paul is, is really having to correct the church for a whole bunch of wrong thinking, a whole bunch of wrong things that they're doing. And in chapter 5 that we'll get to here in the coming weeks, Lord willing, he, he, they, he has to correct some, some immorality that has creeped into the church, and the church seems to be okay with it. They're going to start, they're suing each other, and he's got to address that. There, there's so many things that he's addressing, but when he writes his second letter, this is a pastoral epistle, this second letter. He's writing to them to restore them and encourage them and to say to them, we do not lose heart. He even opens this chapter by saying those same words. Look at the first verse. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, talking about his own apostleship, he says, we do not lose heart. I'm reminded of um, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 follows Hebrews 11. (laughs) Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And then in chapter 11, he recounts basically the history of the people of God, the history of Israel, how all of the things that they accomplished by faith. But then when you get deep into that chapter, we learn of the suffering that they went through, even with their faith. And he points them at the beginning of chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, he points them at Christ. 
Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, the author and finisher of our faith. And in chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, he says this, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. You understand that's a metaphor, right? The drooping hands of our souls, so to speak. The weak knees of our minds. This encouragement, we do not lose heart. It doesn't merely, Paul's not trying to downplay what's going on outside of us, to our outer selves. Paul is not just saying here in these verses, don't worry, cheer up, it'll all just work out. That's not what he's saying. He's not ignoring reality here. There's a, a Latin phrase. It's, it's kind of become a meme recently. But there's this Latin phrase that people have held on to for centuries, I think. Memento mori. You will die someday. That's the phrase. Do you know it's true? <laughs> we all know that it's true. Usually when we think of that, though, we think of that as, as being down the road a long way. When I'm old and full of years, before my health starts to slide, after I get to do all the wonderful things in my life and hold children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, someday I'm going to die. We all know that. My grandfather used to say um, that he wanted to die uh, peacefully and quietly in his sleep like his father did, and not in a flaming car wreck like the rest of the people in the car with him. Sorry, we need to add a little bit of levity. He was joking. My great-grandfather did not die like that. You had to know my grandfather. I'll just remind you, my last name is Kidder. But many of us in this room, a great many of us in this room, could very well attend your funeral. A great many of us in this room could put together a funeral meal for you. Some of you uh, are going to get sick. That's likely. We understand that. We will face suffering and affliction in this life. For some of us, um, we will simply wear ourselves to the bone, physically, through our labor. Our labor, our jobs, our work will slowly yet simply wear out our physical bodies. Poor decisions that we made in our youth will come back and haunt us when we get old, right? We know that. In short, we are all rushing headlong toward death, and some of us faster than others. For the Apostle Paul, the physical battering that he has taken in his service for his Savior, in his service for Jesus, has left him worse for wear. He's feeling it in his body. And it makes him a shame in the eyes of the world. 
at the beginning of the letter in, in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he, he says this. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. Just in this chapter, a few verses before this, verse 8, he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. But no matter how beaten down, no matter how discouraged we might be, Paul says we don't lose heart. And I want you to notice, we, he says, there's people with him. There were people with him back in chapter 1 when he talks about being in Asia. It wasn't just that the Apostle Paul was depressed. He was feeling down about himself. They all felt like they were going to die. Their suffering was so great that they felt like they would be better off dead. But no matter how beaten down and discouraged we might be, he says, we do not lose heart. Why? Because he says our inner self is being renewed day by day. Paul prays in Ephesians 3. I, I prayed part of this earlier. Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Our inner beings, our inner self is being renewed day by day, Paul says. So, so what is that? What is the inner being or the inner self? So we should think of it this way. Our outer selves are nourished with food and rest, right? Our outer selves, our bodies are nourished with food and rest. Our inner selves are also nourished in a similar way. They're nourished with word and sacrament, we sometimes say. Word, God's word, and God's, Jesus' body and blood We know that the worship of the earliest church in Acts chapter 2, the worship of the earliest church centered around the apostles' teaching, the Word of God. It centered around the Lord's Supper. It centered around the prayers and the fellowship that they have together, communion together with the risen Savior. So Acts 2.42 puts it simply like this. And they, that is those who had converted to Christianity, had trusted in Christ for salvation, had come together as the assembly of the saints, the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to those things. The inner self is that eternal part of us. Not the part that's, that's rusting away. 
I want to be careful here. We're not Gnostics. Gnostics believe that the, the, uh, the physical is evil. All of the physical world, including our bodies, is evil, and the, and the spiritual is the only thing that's good. We, we don't believe that. In fact, we believe that our inner self will one day include a resurrected body. But we also believe that that inner self, that eternal part of us, is that which is united to the resurrected Christ. Remember Romans chapter 6. Beginning in verse 4, the apostle says to the people of the church at Rome, he says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. We do not lose heart because if we have died to our old lives, our new lives which have been risen with Christ have been set free. We do not lose heart because we are being renewed. This is a continual process. It's day by day, Paul says here. Every day we get up and we make another step in this process. Now I fully understand that there are days when we maybe take a step backward instead of forward. At least I do. I'm sure you do too. Maybe there are weeks we don't make any steps forward in our Christ-likeness. But we are being renewed day by day. And we can praise God that even in the midst of lament, crying out to God, how long, O Lord? Literally, in the middle of the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 22 to 24, Jeremiah, the author of Lamentations, says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, day by day. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. This renewal, we're being renewed day by day, it comes through a, a continual day by day, hour by hour sometimes, fellowship with the risen Christ in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Look up in verse, um, chapter 3, verse 18. I think it's the last verse of the previous chapter. Paul says, And we all... With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are being transformed. We're looking to Christ, and we're being transformed. Romans chapter 12. This is where we were going to go this morning. and Maybe we'll go there next week. We'll see in the first two verses of Romans chapter 12, he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, which how often are the mercies of God made new? Every morning, Lamentation says. Mercies are new every day. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We're called to be transformed by setting our eyes and our minds on Christ by setting our eyes, our minds on the mercies of God that are new every morning. Paul is telling us here that as his outward life conforms ever more closely to the crucified Christ, as he is beaten and bloodied and crushed, as he is uh, resisted by the world, as they arrest him and throw him in jail, as they whip him, as they leave him for dead, as they drag him outside of the city, as they beat him and bloody him and crush him, his inward life is conforming ever more closely to the glorified Christ. As his outward life looks more and more like Jesus did on the cross, his inward life is looking more and more like Jesus does in glory. Do you know what's causing our outer selves to waste away? Sin. More specifically, because there is sin in the world. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death is in the world because sin is in the world. Death is spread to all men because all are sinners. And fall short of the glory of God. But we do not lose heart. Do you know why? Because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, the Apostle Paul, um, speaking along these same terms, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's becoming and being conformed to the image of God, even in his suffering. Book of Ecclesiastes. Um, You don't have to turn there. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, this is usually what I read when we're at a graveside, part of this at least. As the preacher of Ecclesiastes is looking at life, he says this, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man, what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so does the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than the man should rejoice in his work, for that's his lot. Who can... Bring him to see what will be after him. 
How pessimistic is that? The preacher of Ecclesiastes there says that we're just animals and we're just going to die. We're going back into the dust, ashes to ashes and dust to dust, just like everything else. Just like any animal. You might as well work and enjoy your work, he says. Paul tells us in, turn back a couple pages to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Let's, let's contrast these words with what the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes had said. And, and Ecclesiastes goes on and he comes to a different conclusion at the end, by the way. But that, those verses are so pessimistic. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 47, I, I'd love to read the whole chapter, but it's actually kind of hard to understand at first, so we'll get there eventually. But in verse 47 it says this, The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man in heaven. Those who have been born again, who have trusted in Christ for salvation, that's the man from heaven. We have been recreated, reborn into his image. And our destiny is not dust. Our destiny is glory. We are being renewed day by day, even as we move closer to the dust to dust. Because as verse 50 says of 1 Corinthians 15, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, at the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the, the mortal body put must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory O death where is your victory O death where is your sting do not lose heart Christ will return and death will be swallowed up in victory Amen. But until then, we still smell the stench of death all around us. Until then, we have impossible decisions to make. As I was talking to my mom, as Chris and I were talking to my mom, and my mom's not a believer. She grew up in a Christian home. My grandparents were believers, and she has rejected Christ and not. And she cared for them uh, until they died. And it was a few years caring for um, Grandpa, and then he died. And a few years caring for Grammy, and then she died. And very soon after that, my stepdad, her husband, started showing signs of dementia She's been caring for him for the last few years and, and will for the next few years. And her family looks to her. My Uncle Henry looks to her for help with his wife, help making the decisions 
impossible decisions to make? How should we think of the afflictions that we still have to live with? In light of all of this, how should we think about the afflictions that we still have to live with? What is all this wasting away actually accomplishing? Uh, Remember the word hope. (laughs) It's the eternal weight of glory. Verse 16 or 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The first thing I want to point out from verse 17 here is that we don't really think of our afflictions as light and momentary, right? It's okay to acknowledge that. If we're comparing it to other things we've experienced, if we're comparing it to the the people around us or other families that we look at, we don't think of our afflictions, our suffering, as light and momentary. The struggles that we face, the pain that we face is real, it is deep, and for some of us in this room, it is almost overwhelming. And Paul isn't downplaying these things. Remember his own. Remember that he said, this is the Apostle Paul who has seen the risen Christ. He said, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul wanted to die. Turn back to 1 Kings. We're going to get into Kings a little bit today. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. First Kings 19, just beginning in verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on the hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, still small voice. 
When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I'll just stop. Elijah's been doing the Lord's work. He's been doing what God told him to do. But now he's despairing of life itself. Now he's in the same position that the Apostle Paul had been in in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And I don't think we should be too hard on Elijah. Do you see how gently the Lord dealt with him there? The first thing he did was deal with his outer self. He says, arise and eat. Here's a cake and some water. Our affliction is heavy. Your affliction might last for the rest of your life. You may never receive a reprieve in this life. I'm going to go ahead and guess that no angel is bringing you cakes. Is this light and momentary? The incredible eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison outweighs any earthly afflictions we can face. Think of a scale, like an old-fashioned scale. And on one hand, you have our afflictions that are, as Paul says, light and momentary. They don't weigh much. They last a short time. On the other end of the scale is the eternal weight of glory. What's that scale doing? What if we faced our afflictions, all of them, no matter what they are, what if we faced our afflictions with the same attitude that the apostles had? Acts chapter 5, verses 40 and 41. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced in their afflictions. Now I realize that there's a difference here. Outward physical persecution and dealing with sickness and death. I realize that there is a bit of a difference here. But they rejoiced in their afflictions. Biblically speaking, and I'm just going to speak on my own experience here for just a second. And biblically speaking, we understand that our suffering could be rooted in our own sin. When I was a in Illinois, I've probably told this story before, but when I was in Illinois as the assistant pastor, for a year, maybe more, every morning when I would get up, I couldn't stand up straight because my back was such a mess. I went to a chiropractor three times a week for a year. Went to specialists, all of that. I had to get up in the morning and lay flat on a wood floor in order to stand up straight. Do you know what? I haven't had back problems since... We moved here. <laughs> as soon as I resigned that position, my back problems went away. 
Now, some would probably say, well, it was the stress or whatever of the job, and there may be something to that, but I actually think it was my attitude. I think it was my attitude. My attitude toward the other leaders in the church, toward the church, toward being in that job, toward living in Illinois, whatever it was, it was my attitude. When I repented of that, the Lord gave me a reprieve. Now, I realize it doesn't happen for everybody, and we need to check our own hearts. James talks about that. But the incredible eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison outweighs any earthly afflictions that we can face. The apostle says in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not even worth comparing. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, he says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. The scripture is telling us here in these passages that God is working through this trouble, not, not in spite of it. Do you, under, do you understand the difference? God is working through our afflictions. So what is the eternal weight of glory? Well, as I said, think of the scales and things of value, even throughout history, things of value like gold and silver, they're measured by weight. That's the comparison here. Eternal weight of glory. So measure the weight of the afflictions that we are going through with the eternity on the other end of those scales. But not just think of eternity for a moment. It's not just some nebulous, sort of hard-to-define uh, length of time. We're talking about eternity with Christ. Beholding His glory in His presence as our King. No more affliction. No more of the cause of affliction, sin. And so Paul tells us here to fix our eyes on the unseen. Verse 18. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For many of us in here, we, it's so easy to fix our eyes on the seen. Because <laughs> we can see it. And so we fix our eyes on the news. We fix our eyes on the news. We watch it. It's on all the time. We fix our eyes um, on our phones. All of us do, most of us do this. We fix our eyes on our bills. We fix our eyes on our sufferings. But we are called to fix our eyes on the unseen, fix our eyes on the next world, the world that lasts. And Paul here, speaking of the resurrection, of being like Christ in eternity, he, he wrote this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 and 14. He's speaking of the resurrection. He's speaking of eternity with Christ. And he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We are fixing our eyes on Christ. 
Likewise, he urges Christians in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Set your eyes on Christ. John Chrysostom, he died a long time ago. He said this, Consider, dearly beloved, that life's troubles, even if distressing, are still of short duration, whereas the good things that will come to us in the next life are eternal and everlasting. Accordingly, let us endure what is passing without complaint and and not desist from virtue's struggle so that we may enjoy the good things that are eternal and last forever. So as we finish up, I want to give you four reasons from this passage to not lose heart. Okay, Four reasons to not lose heart. The first is this. This is a momentary affliction. This is a momentary affliction. That doesn't mean it's only going to last a few minutes or a few days. It means it will end. It will end. There will come a day when death is destroyed, when sin and death are cast into the lake of fire. Your afflictions, whatever they are, will not outlive you. They will not and they cannot last beyond your final breath. They will not have the last say in your life. This is a momentary affliction. Our eyes are set on Christ and eternity. Second, this is a light affliction. This is a light affliction. Again, this doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's painless. He means that compared to what is coming, these things are as nothing. See, see, we don't, we don't really have, I don't think we really have the brain power to imagine life without sin. I don't think we really can do that. We can read about it in the scriptures, but I don't, I don't think we can imagine what life will be like if there were no sin and death. We're so inundated, surrounded with sin, both inside of us and around us, that to picture an existence with no possibility of somebody wronging us, hurting us, No possibility of our own minds wandering into places where they should not. So we simply have to hold on to the fact that the eternal weight of glory doesn't tip the scales, it destroys the scales. The eternal weight of glory, it's not tipping the scales, it's destroying them. Not even worth comparing. This is a light affliction Keep your eyes on Christ. Number three, this is um, what is in our minds is an eternal weight of glory. Do not lose heart because your affliction is actually producing and eter- producing. Do you understand this? This is what Paul is talking about. Your affliction is actually producing. God is working through this an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. The eternal glory that we faced is beyond comprehension. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who loved him. 
It's beyond all that we can ask or imagine. Don't lose heart. Fix your eyes on eternity with Christ. And then the fourth is this. Our eyes are fixed on the unseen, eternal glory to come. I mentioned Hebrews chapter 12. Let me read the first two verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which so clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And the author of Hebrews goes on to tell us where he always lives to intercede for us. That Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, praying for you. He's always living to intercede for you. And so we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Pray with me. Father, that's all we can say. I pray that as we leave here today, as we work through this week, that we would keep our eyes on Jesus. Father, let us not lose heart. Keep these things in our minds this week. In the coming weeks, that we might not lose heart. Father, as we come to your table now, we do not presume to come trusting in our own righteousness, but in your great mercies. Mercies that are renewed every day. We're not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs from your table, Lord, but you are merciful and gracious. And so, Father, may we come to this table to commemorate and to celebrate this breaking of bread and the death of your Son, that we may feed on him in our hearts by faith, that we may, we may be united to him and he to us who with you and the Holy Spirit is worthy of eternal thanks and praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.